People that say they're not scared are insane or lying because I have my fears. It's just I have a good system now that I developed personally that I talked about a mastering fear that I use myself. Hi, my name's Kurt Mercadante, and I'm a husband, father, speaker, trainer, and disruptive entrepreneur whose mission is to save the world by helping individuals fight for lives of freedom and fulfillment. And that's what this show is about. We're here to help you fight apathy and conformity in your life. We're here to interview and tell the stories of individuals around the world who are helping others live lives of freedom and fulfillment as well. This is the Freedom Club Podcast, and we're grateful you're here. And welcome to another episode of the Freedom Club Podcast. I'm so happy you are here, and you are going to be very happy for tuning in today. We have an incredible guest Brandon Webb is a former U.S. Navy SEAL sniper. He's a New York Times best-selling author, books like The Red Circle, Extreme Focus, and Mastering Fear. He's a pilot of many different types of airplanes, I noticed. Uh, an entrepreneur, founder of the Crate Club Group, which is a U.S.-based men's lifestyle company with multiple digital publishing and e-commerce brands. He's also co-founder at GSD Logistics, a third-party fulfillment company focused on global e-commerce fulfillment. You've also served as an appointed board member on the Veterans Advisory Committee to the U.S. Small Business Administration. Brandon Webb, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, like, thanks for having me and for the uh, extensive in- intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I like to cover all bases just yeah. in case. So uh, you've served our country um, and this is the Freedom Club podcast. And I always ask the one question, what does freedom mean to you? And I get a variety of answers uh, from political freedom to socioeconomic freedom to freedom to start your own business, uh, all types of freedom. So I want to ask you, Brandon, what does the word freedom mean to you? What does the word freedom mean to me? Uh, I would say, uh, you know, it's as I think back, it probably meant something very different to my 18-year-old self than it does today to, to my 40-something self. Um, I, I think of freedom as the ability, like autonomy. It's like today I, I earn enough income where I could do and go anywhere in the world, really, I, I want to. Um, and really, I, th- I think I've gotten that freedom out of the career I've kind of built for myself as an entrepreneur with, with a ton of freedom to do and surround myself with the people I want to be around and go to the places I want to be and not really have anything holding me down. So, I mean, I, I think I live a very free life right now. Sure. And I would be, yeah. Speaking of fear, terrified to lose that. <laughs> once, you have, once you have a taste of it, you know, it, it really is uh, an amazing thing. And, you know, uh, and a part of that is having the financial freedom to, to do that. And it, it, it doesn't take much, you know, but it, it does. I, I see people right on my Instagram all the time. They say, oh, I want to be rich. And they don't even know what rich is, right? It's, hmm. You've read a couple of my books. I, I get into that kind of like knowing what your number is. Um, but I see it often, right? Like everybody wants, and I don't, sorry, I'm rambling. I'm, uh, no, this is great. But I, I also think it's easy to blame the generation behind us. Like, oh, millennials are like this and that. It's like, no, it's, there's a reason the, the, the 99, bottom 99% has always existed, right? Like it's, right. it's not, 
it's just like some people are willing to do just a little bit more work than what it takes. Um, I just hear it all. I, I have some millennials that work for me are the hardest working, smartest, most driven people I've been around. Um, so I don't think it's, I think it's, it's kind of a scapegoat to blame the, the next or the previous generation. But, um, you know, my, I guess the point of all this is, you know, there is no cheat code. You've got to like, you got to put in the hard work um, and really have a vision to kind of build whatever kind of life you want. Um, and, you know, it all comes down to purpose, right? What anyone's read that book by Viktor Frankl. Sure. Yeah. Amazing man's search for meaning. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, the, the millennials piece and, and I've, you know, there's certain things about any generation that I, 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 can sometimes criticize, right? But, you know, Gallup does a lot of studies on the workforce and the millennial workforce. And, you know, they don't just want bosses anymore. They want to be coached. They don't just want job satisfaction. They want to, do, to be developed and they want to share in the yeah. company's purpose. And it's a wake-up call. And I run into a lot of people of an older generation who've never figured out their purpose. So they should figure, they think like, why should anyone else want a purpose? And, and the wonderful thing about millennials is, and listen, you, when you came out of the military, you could have settled. Yeah. You could have just, you know, not done what you wanted to do and designed your life. And there's a lot of folks like that. The millennials aren't going to put up with it. They'll stay someplace for six months or a year. And if they don't like it, and if they can't share in their purpose, they'll leave. And I know some people will say, well, you're entitled, you know, they're entitled for doing that. But is that any better or worse than living in a lifestyle default for like 30 years and then passing that on to your kids, right? Yeah, I mean, it, the challenge is a, as a business owner for me is like, how do you manage a cross generational workforce? Um, and also like how we have, we have on the digital media side of my business, cross generational audience. So you have to speak to that audience in different ways. And look, the millennials are, are a result of the environment we kind of created for them. Right. So, and it's like become coming of the digital age. And now, Gen Z is on the rise, right? Like I have a Gen Z, a couple Gen Z kids. Um, and I'm like really inspired by Generation Z. Like they're very, my daughter went to outdoor camp last week and she said, wow, I really didn't want to, I didn't want to, um, she had to surrender her phone all week. And she's like, I didn't want to get my phone back because I realized like how, how nice it was to just be unconnected from the digital world. And it's you and I are the same generation where um, I don't know if you played video games or role-playing games as a kid, but that was like an escape mechanism. We would escape into this digital world. Now the escape is like, get out and, and go camping in the real right, world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I have a coaching group and I, I issue, we do seven day challenges and I issued a seven day challenge to when the sun goes down, turn off your screens. Now, there's all the studies about blue light messing with your melatonin levels and not, you know, you don't sleep and you get stressed and all that. But I said, don't look at it as a saying no to the screens. There's the other piece of like, instead of retreating to different rooms on your iPad, like go talk to your wife or husband, <laughs> you yeah. know, play cards with your kids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that the, the escape is I went for a walk. <laughs> yeah. no, I, went, I went for a hike or I went camping. Yeah. So you made that transition. And as I mentioned, I may mention offline. I can't remember if I mentioned offline or on this show. Uh, I work with a number of uh, vets who are either recently or within the last, say, five, 10 years have transitioned. 
And they're having a challenge. Uh, and it's a big learning experience for me because they are gripped with fear. And to me, it's like, you know, one guy uh, was in special forces and it's like, you've seen things I've never seen and I'm helping you get over fear, but it's a different, it's a different kind of fear. They're, yeah. they, they, are, they are in a job and I don't know, I, I'll, I'll let you answer this question. I almost get the sense that they're so used to taking orders that they can't jump in and even imagine that they would do anything for themselves. And they're so gripped with fear that sometimes they just disappear. It's a year long course. They'll disappear for two months and come back and say, I just couldn't function because I'm no. so scared. Have you seen that before? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a interesting time we're living in, right? We have this one of like a really large transition of military service members to civilian life. Who's you know largely, um, been on the front lines against this global war on terror for a lot, for almost two decades. Right. Um, yeah. I think it's a, it's a, such a complex thing to look at because look, when I was a, I was a combat veteran, I did two, two real combat deployments and I was, you know, pre nine 11 and right after nine 11, I went to Afghanistan. Um, but war is hell. Like we did a lot of good work over there, but, you know, a lot of people died, uh, in the process. And when I came back, it was very easy for me to rationalize what we're doing over there. Cause we had a clear vision and strategy for what we're doing in Afghanistan. We're going to destroy these terrorist training camps, kill some bad guys, try and get bin Laden. And then that's like, that, that's something I think, I think everyone could get behind at that time. And then if Afghanistan kind of evolves where it is today and nobody knows, like, I've talked to politicians, uh, people at the highest levels of government, and no one can give me a straight answer on Afghanistan. And hmm. look, if, that's like if you ask this, you know, CEO what his plan was for the business, and he couldn't give you a straight answer, and nobody in the organization can give you a straight answer. That's a problem, like a big problem. And why I mention it is because imagine somebody in 2010, 2012 that served in Afghanistan and saw saw and did really bad things and come back and then realize after they get out of the military, what the hell was that for? Like, and they realize there's really no purpose behind it. And they, I think, you know, just the way the human brain function, there's this like really a struggle to kind of rationalize what they've done. So you're, you're dealing with like a lot of psychological trauma when people transition. Now you're dealing with going from a very structured environment where I, I compare it to like a, somebody in prison for 10 years that, or, or longer, right? We've heard, heard the stories of like people breaking the law just so they can go back to that structured environment of jail because that's what they become used to. So I, I feel like the military is a very structured environment and, and, and then, you know, it gets even more complex now because I, I feel like in World War, post-World War II, that particular conflict was very, like people knew what we were fighting, you know, this axis of evil Hitler, um, you know, kind of, it was very easy to wrap your head around and guys came back and they had really good support system, you know, not only a good homecoming, but also, you know, a robust VA, robust nonprofits. Now it's a total shit show. You know, the VA is a terrible mess. They're like pumping yeah. drugs into people. So it's just like a really, it's a tough, um, and complex environment to navigate, right? So I just kind of 
putting some background out there. Yeah. To your point around the fear, um, look, I'm, you're another component of like this transition and my own struggle was I just thought I could trust people the same way I trusted them in the military. Cause it, when you're coming from the military, it has trust built into that system where you know, someone's going to show up on time. You know, they're going to do their job. Um, they do what they say they're going to do because that military system puts severe consequences in place. If that doesn't happen, now you're out in the real world and Joe, the roofer, takes $5,000 and skips town. And, you know, it's like all this stuff happens and you're like, shit, who do I trust? Um, and so it's, it's a little scary, especially, I think, scarier for those that do more than four or five years because they're going from this very structured environment, paycheck every two weeks, medical's covered, everything's covered for you. Um, you know what to expect. And now you're in this free-for-all world of regular civilian life. So it, it can be a little bit scary. Um, and I, and again, also the challenge is what skills, what are my military skills that translate well into the civilian world and what don't translate well, right? Cause there's certain things that work in kind of like a military environment that don't, I mean, I'm gonna give you a little bit of a childish example. Like my, I remember when I was a new guy at SEAL team three, if some, I remember a couple of guys were ha- having an argument and our chief said, Hey, you guys take it out back and settle that. You know, that doesn't <laughs> fly in the civilian world very well. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, in another layer of complexity is the special ops community. I think it's, it's really tough because they're at the top levels of the military, kind of the military's elite and then you're just kind of an average person on the outside, right? Aside from maybe somebody buying you a beer at the pub. Um, and so they're, and plus it's a very competitive environment and it's on the outside can create a lot of bad resentment. And, um, you know, you and I were talking about kind of the guy talking about the community haters. Well, I, I face that. I mean, I, yeah. I get that. I get that all the time. And it's why does Brandon, why is Brandon successful flying around in his airplanes when he only did two combat deployments? I did 15. Where's my, where's my money? You know what I mean? And, and so, um, it's a, the special operations community can be very, very nasty on the outside. Um, and I wish we had stronger leadership to kind of foster a better, kind of post, uh, post-service environment. And the, the communities I've seen do really, really well at that are the pilot communities. Okay. Uh, I'm, I fly with a bunch of former fighter pilots from the Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, and they have a really robust um, kind of post-service uh, community, um, good network. They kind of really take care of each other. And, and I wish we had that for the special operations community. We just, unfortunately, we just don't have it. And, and then you, mm. you wind up where some poor guy is trying to start a, you know, coaching or leadership business and guys are like taking cheap shots at them rather than encouraging them. Right. Yeah. I see that in a number, you know, and I, I see that for non-military people too, non-former military people where I call them scarcity pimps. They're yeah. the people in your life who are like, you know, they could be parents 
well, you worked so hard for that bachelor's degree. Why would you want to give that up to start your own business? Or, you know, you do well. And it's like, well, we're on vac- I'm on vacation with my wife, but I'm not going to post these pictures on Facebook. Not that Facebook's the end. I'll be all, you know, I got problems with that too. But, but, but I'm not going to do it because I have that friend or that relative who's going to say, must be nice. You know, they must be doing real well. And then, you know, there's a, like the client I have former military who feels is worried about what the former guys on the team are going to say about him. And you tell in extreme ownership, you tell a great story. And I immediately thought of all this when I read it. That's not my book, by the way. <laughs> What's that? No, not extreme. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Extreme focus. I apologize. I apologize. (laughs) I apologize. Um, Extreme focus. Um, When you, uh, the the conversation you had with Mark Harmon um, and about his father, could you, could you tell us about that? Yeah. You know, it it was, um, you know, my, my kind of story, I was one of the first from the Navy SEAL community to kind of get out mid-career with, with a small group, right? Like Chris Kyle, who wrote American Sniper, Marcus Luttrell. We were both kind of mid-career, eight to 10-year mark. And not a lot of guys were getting out because the reenlistment bonuses were massive. Um, guys were doing, you know, you, you train to be a SEAL. You want to go put that, that trade craft to work. So guys were getting a lot of action overseas. Um, but we got out and we're the kind of the first group to kind of write books and get into the media. And, and that drew a lot of it, like a lot of attention and, you know, to be, to, to basically describe, even at the, at Warcom, our parent command, they would basically like mock guys like myself and Chris Kyle, they would celebrate them in public and then mock us on a PowerPoint, official government PowerPoint saying, oh, don't be like these guys out in the media, right? Rather than kind of embracing what we're doing and maybe help helping us get the messaging across. Uh, instead, they were just kind of like creating this very adversarial environment. And so then it just trickles down, right? So we're just getting a lot of internal community haters and guys would say awful stuff, you know, um, you know, about my family, my kids, they'd make up things. Guys try to, you know, take cheap shots. Um, and it, it sucks, you know, you're this community that you like invested your heart and soul into, um, you know, and, and then there's the guy that, <laughs> you know, a couple guys that I personally ushered out of the community for drug and alcohol abuse mm. that, have big Instagram followings and then, you know, taking shots at me who had a, a pretty good career and proud of my service record. Um, it's tough to deal with that. And so I had this conversation with Mark Harmon when we were working on a, a book, taking my first book, the red circle and optioning it for a TV series uh, with CBS. I was just telling Mark about my own struggle with like dealing with this stuff. And he's like, look, let me tell you this story because everybody who's successful is going to draw, draw this out of people. He's like, and for, for one, he said, no, no happy person has time for the, that kind of bullshit that like, no, no person that's in a good place in their life is going to waste an ounce of time, like going after and saying bad things about other people. Cause they just don't care. They're, they're doing their own thing. He's like, so you have to realize like most of these people are coming from a really bad place personally. Um, but he told the story, I mean, his father is like 
Heisman, Michigan Heisman Trophy winner, gave up a professional football career to join the Army Air Corps and fly bombers and fighters planes in World War II and was like a full-on war hero. Um, and Mark told me this story, like he would, the, the mean stuff that people would say to him, like, because Mark was, not a lot of people, people know Mark for being a you know, very successful actor, but they don't know that he was a quarterback for the UCLA Bruins. Right. Yeah. And when he was, when he was a quarterback, he's like from the sidelines, people would say things about how his dad was a coward because he bailed out of his bomber plane and he was the only survivor. You know, he left everyone to die. Like, so he would just say like, these people say these like incredibly terrible things. And he's like, you just need to realize that you got to let it roll off uh, your back, like water, water off a duck. Um, and, and that, no person in a good place is, is kind of, um, you know, going to, or, or I guess so what I'm trying to say is like no person in a good place in their life has time to, to kind of go after people that way that you got to realize these people are having, like, they're really hurting and struggling inside. Yeah. Um, and I recently had a really, really close friend of mine, the SEAL community who I taught with call me up and he's going through a, you know, divorce, he's under like extreme financial stress. And he called me, he's like, man, I kind of get it. He's like, I, I saw your Instagram page and you're flying around your plane in New York. And he's like, I got really pissed off and angry, <laughs> but he was like admitting. Really? And it's, it's tough, you know, so, especially cause our, my generation as Gen X, we're kind of like in the, this weird spot on social media, right? With Facebook right. came on and Facebook was kind of like very controlled. Now people are just can share in real time on Instagram and Snapchat. Uh, and um, we're kind of like, how do you manage that? It's why my 13 year old daughter has like four posts on her Instagram. She just like doesn't want to live her life in, in public the same way like a millennials and some Gen Xers do. But it, I've had to, like, I, I'm passionate about watches. I collect watches as like a wearable investment. And I had to stop posting because I had so many friends like, hey, you really got to stop because it, really? it's like pissing people off. Like, you're, it's like you're flaunting this stuff when really I'm just like obsessed about watches, right? <laughs> so, but yeah. it's like, okay, I get it. I have to take that feedback and, and as constructive feedback because I don't, uh, I don't want to like make it, make it worse or rub, rub it in people's faces. But yeah. anyway, I'm on a full ramble now. <laughs> no, no, no. That's all, that's all helpful. Cause I think it's something that we all deal with. And, um, uh, you know, going back to fear, um, it, you know, I picked up the book. I was in Barnes and Noble. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta pick this up not only for myself, but also to help my clients in terms of, of getting through it. And there were a number of things that were, um, different as I read them than I would have thought. And they, they changed my mind. You know, one of those is comfort zone. Yeah. And, you know, everyone always says, get out of your comfort zone. And you said, well, screw that. You, you perform best when you're in your comfort zone. Um, I almost read into it, like expand what your comfort zone is, <laughs> you know, get into that. Yeah. But can you talk about that a little bit? Because all you hear, right, is get out of your comfort zone, get out of your comfort zone, get out of comfort zone. So that may be surprising yeah. for some to read. Yeah, I mean, and... And I would say like this, I've worked um, and I had my own kids read this book because I think it's really, I think this book really sets kids up for success in life because we have so many negative 
negative influences as a parent we can't control, right? We send our kids off to school or uh, they get coached. We have a lot of like un- uncontrollable. So like, arming the kids with the right tools uh, yeah. around how to deal with negativity and, and fear, I think is super important. But the comfort zone question, you know, I almost think of it as like you have to, it's like, what inspired the book was taking my best friend, Kamal mm-hmm. Ravikant, who's an extremely successful guy, venture capitalist, him and his brother founded Angelist. Kamal uh, is a best-selling author. I mean, just an amazing guy. But I found out through becoming friends with him that he, he um, had, had a fear of the water and never learned how to swim. And so what I, how I taught him was like, okay, how do I get him in a, into like, how do I create a comfort zone for him slowly in the beginning? And it kind of expanded over time to where he's previously was an extremely uncomfortable environment, but make it more comfortable for him. And, and I taught him in these tiny little micro steps, but I took him from Monday in the pool, terrified of the water, like climbing in on the ladder, gripping hmm ladder like white knuckling you know grabbing the side of the pool like just like you know how we've all those of us that have taken lifeguarding classes like he's the worst rescue you want to make right because he's going to try and drown you when you right when you go to rescue him. I, I took him i took kamal who was like that and then on friday could jump into 15 foot deep section with a cannonball sink himself to the bottom of the pool and like swim a couple laps. Like, and he's like, wow, like you've changed my life. Um, but I started with tiny, like just put, put his face in the, in and out of the water a hundred times over, you know, 15 minutes, just these little small repetitive steps where he's like, okay, I, I used to not like my face in the water. Now I'm just like, I'm so comfortable with, I'm bored. What's the next thing. Right. And so kind of building on those steps, I said, go home tonight and visualize yourself in these, like, when you get scared, you can imagine in your head how, what this task is going to do and how your heart starts racing. Visualize that and practice over and over. You know, it doesn't have to be crazy 10, 12 times before you go to bed at night. And over the time that kind of builds comfort around what was previously a really scary thought or idea. And the, I think the really easy comparison there is public speaking. Sure. I, I, I love public speaking now. I love giving interviews where previously, and I'm pretty extroverted guy, but I was terrified to public speak. Like that's just, you just, you're getting up in front of an audience cause you just, you've never done it before. And there's, you're just kind of, the idea of it is, is really scary. Uh, I got over it when I went to Navy instructor school cause they force you to get in front of the class and they videotape you. And then they write down how many times you say like, or uh, Sure. Like hundred times and you realize <laughs> you watch your videotape and go, Oh my God. But it forces you to kind of overcome that fear of public speaking. Uh, and now that I do do public speaking regularly, I know every time I get nervous, I just know that's a part of the deal. And, and it's, and once you know and accept that and just harness it, it's a totally different mindset. And, and then think about, how that that nervousness of the situation can actually drive performance because no world records are broken in practice. 
they're broken in the Olympic arena and in competitive environments where the stakes are high. People are nervous. That nervous energy is what forces people to push beyond what they previously thought was humanly possible. So once people kind of accept that um, and realize, again, everybody's scared of something. People that say they're not scared are insane or lying to us all because I'm, I have my fears. Um, it's just, I have a good system now that I developed personally that I talked about a mastering fear that I use myself. Where I've, there's been times of seven years as an entrepreneur, this summer was one of the most, the worst summers I've had in business in seven years. Really? And I had the little voices start creeping up. Right. And I was like, shit, am I going to lose my business? Am I good enough to kind of run this business at this level and take it to the next level? Um, am I going to lose everything? Like, <laughs> all these. Yeah. But I realized, okay, when that starts happening, I know what I have to do to, to, to fix it. But it's, look, I'm, I'm not immune to it. Just like nobody is immune to that stuff. You know, and, and bringing the two books together, Mastering Fear and what you just talked about and Extreme Focus, when, you know, you talk about, you, you know, with Kamal, right? You get him used to the water, you bring him along, but then Extreme Focus, you, you know, at that point at which I either had to jump out of a helicopter or have the red circle on someone, right? It wasn't just all of a sudden that I did that. It was built up over time. So you had that preparation. You talked about the two things I love you talk about uh, with Kamal were repetition and visualization because I'm not scared of public speaking, but the visualization and repetition have helped me speak better and uh, have more energy when I speak because I visualize exactly what it looks like so that when I get there, I've already given that speech yeah. like a hundred times, which, and then I, you know, if I do have any fear, I'm not scared anymore. Now I am committed to using this book to overcome. I have a massive fear of heights. Yeah. Um, in 2020, that's, that's my very goal. Natural fear, right? Like that's yeah. the fear that keeps us alive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, it actually came out when we were in, uh, we, we went to Italy in May and the Isle of Capri, I don't know if you've ever been there, but when you go up to the top, uh, you know, you think you're at the top of the mountain. No, it goes up higher and they have a chairlift that goes up. And, you know, here in the U S we're so like liability terrified and safety conscious that like when you sit in a chairlift, it stops, you get in it. I mean, you're in it securely. This is, it doesn't stop. It's going pretty fast. You (laughs) jump in it, it goes, and you could, you could just slide out if you wanted. And well, I had to bring my eight-year-old. So we have four kids. So my wife had our five-year-old, our two other kids got on alone. And I bring my, our eight-year-old's like a floppy noodle, right? He has no, he, like, he doesn't, grip. So I have him on, I'm holding on to him for dear life and I'm terrified. So you go up and the mountain is behind us. And I, so I just keep feeling we're going to fall backward, you know? Yeah, yeah. So we get up there and I'm like, you're up, I think 300 meters up over the ocean looking down. And then we got to go down. And I'm like, you know, honey, I, I don't really want to do it. <laughs> and she's like, well, there's no way down. So we're doing it. She gets on with the kid. The other kid's gone. The other kid's gone. Well, you're supposed to just sit back. You're not supposed to jump, but my eight-year-old is just, he doesn't have a lot of muscle tone, right? Yeah. I take it and then I jump up. The seat swings back, hits me. 
knocks me forward. My leg gets caught. The, 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 whatever the brace closes, my son is still half in the seat. I'm out and it's pushing me toward the side. So there's an eight foot safety net. And then there's the mountain down. So I grab onto the chair the lift. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do like a Captain America and rip the whole damn thing down. Uh, I end up crawling on top and I'm getting pulled over the safety net, you know, about to go down the mountain. But in that moment, it's funny. I didn't have a fear of heights. All I was focused on was protecting my son. Um, But I do, I do realize I I do. I think it was spurred on my jumping and everything by the fear of heights, the the subconscious fear of heights that it's like, I need to get over this now. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, it's like I said, everybody, everybody struggles with it. I noticed even myself, something that wouldn't be scary as scary to me in my early twenties is now, I don't know if it's cause you're more wise and have life experience, but you're just like, Oh, that's a little, little too much for me. You know? Um, even I remember going to Africa and the bungee jumping, I was just looking at the operation going, I don't think that's safe. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't trust the people. I don't trust the equipment. It's, I don't have a problem hucking myself off a thousand foot cliff on a bungee, but I want the right equipment, the right staff there. And it just, I was like, I'm not, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm not doing this. Uh, so I think a lot of it has to do with kind of low, like you said, right. You're looking at all the, all the safety measures and going, well, this isn't, like as buttoned up as it should be into the hole. <laughs> well, it was it, I read a book uh, earlier this year. It was, it's an older book, D-Day by Stephen Ambrose. And he talks about, it's all about D-Day, how they chose, they didn't choose anyone. The people they chose on D-Day were the young kids who had never been in battle because the ones who had been through battle oh, they knew, yeah. were new and the other ones just ran into it. So on that note, when you look at, you know, maybe it's the older you get or whatever. You look at all angles, right? And there's a lot of people who they are just over planners, over strategic people. You know, in the Civil War, Grant was successful because he just took it to the enemy. He planned, but he also he also engaged. Yeah. And in Extreme Focus, you talk about violence of action. I actually, I'll share it with you. Uh, I read that chapter and it spurred on, I did in my coaching group, an entire, and I quoted you, an entire hour-long session on violence of action because the number one thing I see is I have the perfect plan. All right, I'm going to act. Wait, I even thought of a perfecter plan, right? And they keep yeah, going yeah. and going. And I had one use, and I use it in the book, um, you know, uh, no battle plan survives first contact. And yeah. I've had clients use that with me. And I say, right, but the key is there. You actually have to make first contact for that to apply. Um can you explain violence of action? And, you know, I, I link it to that fear. You got to overcome the fear to do the violence of action, but that violence of action, like, like we talked about before, doesn't all of a sudden happen on one day. Yeah. As a sniper, you train for years for that. Uh, jumping out of planes, you train for years for that, right? <laughs> yeah. And I actually like your title, Extreme Focus, but the book is Total Focus. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, yeah, don't worry about it. I was like, okay, I went a couple times. I'm like, okay, I got to correct. Because if people go look for it now, Total Focus. You know what? It's on my Kindle, so I don't have it in front of me. I have the mastering <laughs> fear. My apologies. <laughs> total Focus, Total Focus. <laughs> um, so, yeah, violence of action. I mean, it's it's obviously a term coined in the seal and special operations community. Um, but I, you know, I think it's not as 
violent as the name would lend itself sure. to. It's, it's just about basically um, creating like to your point with uh, the civil war example, when you, when you execute, right. It's basically what we're saying is if you execute a good plan now it's better than executing a well thought out plan a year from now, a week, a month, um, because we know whether you're in business or combat mission, you can plan and make contingencies and have a roughly your directionally, you've got a good plan, but things are going to change. Like the battlefield is going to evolve. The marketplace is going to evolve and you have to get out there and, and do it or else you're never going to learn too. like, you're going to, you're going to make mistakes. And, and, and a lot of times, even at, I, I remember meeting uh, the CEO of Skullcandy, uh, with, they did kind of this similar thing before Beats. They basically branded headphones, right? So this guy uh, came from Nike and took over the role as CEO. I, I, I saw him at one of my uh, young president's organizations, uh, YPO uh, group talks in the city. And he said, you'd be surprised at how scared Nike is of this startup kind of athletic company. Interesting. Because the startup, they're terrified because they know they can get outmaneuvered. And with it comes to cutting edge technology, uh, speed to market, you know, Nike plans a product release, probably I'm guessing a couple years in advance, minimum. And whereas a, you know, two people with a good idea um, and enough airfare to go to, to China can kind of invent and bring stuff to market, especially in the, age of the internet where you, a lot of things are going direct to consumer, they can get it out there in months. And so, and Nike would, this guy was saying, yeah, that we'd have these discussions where we bring in these, these kind of startup groups and they're like terrified because we're the big bad Nike and we have so much power and financial resources. But he said, really on the flip side, we were also terrified of these younger uh, startups because they could just do things quicker and faster than we could. So, um, the, the reason I mention that is because especially in a small special operations unit, you really realize what you can do and accomplish. Um, if you have, if you do it quickly and, and, and you execute and make a habit of executing quickly because you're constantly, by the time your enemy is trying to figure out what happened, it's too late. You're, they're either done or you're on to something else. Uh, and so, you know, translating that to the real world, um, I think, yeah, people get so caught up in planning and they just, they think, oh, I just got to check this box or come up with this. And they don't realize like you've got, you have to get out there and do it to build confidence, to make mistakes, to learn. Uh, and then you realize that no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> it's gonna, right. It's right. Gonna, and, and the, it's just making a habit really out of exe executing is really what that violence of action is, is all about. Um, and once you have that habit, it's like, like I'm not afraid to, I've, I've gone to zero twice in my life. I know now I have the knowledge to, if I wanted to buy a business, um, tons of, 
I, I think the franchise franchise businesses are great for especially the military folks coming out transitioning civilian life because the very structured um, environment for them to step into and run a franchise, you run one successfully, you can buy 10, 20, 50 more and you're running a $50 million plus business. Sure. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, violence of action. Yeah. Well, Brandon, you are someone who have, has certainly been action oriented and executed, whether it's Navy SEAL, entrepreneurship, best-selling author of The Red Circle, Total Focus, my apologies. I wrote it down once and then I keep repeating it, right? Uh, and Mastering Fear. We're going to link to all your companies, all your books, all your links in the show notes. Brandon, it's been an honor and pleasure to have you on the Freedom Club podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. 